John chapter 18. Jesus says in John 12, the hour has arrived. You have the triumphal entry where he enters the city of Jerusalem riding a colt. Chapter 13, he has the Passover feast in the upper room, doesn't he? Judas leaves, he goes to sell Christ. Christ goes around and washes the disciples' feet. Chapter 14, he tells the disciples he's going away. But it's actually better for them because the Holy Spirit is going to come. Chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you're truly my disciples, he teaches them in that upper room, you will bear fruit. Chapter 17, he prays for them as they leave the upper room. Chapter 18, where we are today, they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. The last words have been spoken. The last prayer that his disciples prayed. He goes to the streets outside the city, across the Kidron Valley, to the Mount of Olives, into a garden. Small enclosed property, probably mainly fruit trees, olive trees, and an oil press. He goes there to prepare, pray and prepare for the cross. And what I think is amazing is, if you remember, sin entered the world in a garden. And now the sin sacrifice of the Lord would be given to the world in a garden. Let's just pray for our time, and then I'll read the text. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear the glory of Christ as the Son of God, to believe it, to trust Him as God and know Him as Lord. Teach us now, Your people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I'll just read John 18. If you'll start with me at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, Put away your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray for our time. We've already prayed for our time. Let's get on with the text. See, that's what happens when you do something you don't normally do. I want to read to you 
four statements that I think describe very well the culture that we live in today. The worldview that you receive on almost every movie you see, every TV show you watch, and people who are not believers give you. First is this. God is fair, and therefore all religions must lead to God. In other words, all ways are valid ways to God, and if not, God would not be fair. Because who's to say the Christians' works are not any better than the Hindus' works? Second, all religions are the same because they teach us to honor God and do what is right. In other words, externally they might be a few differences, but internally all faiths, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, they're the same. I teach love God, love your neighbor. What's the difference? Three, our calling is the pursuit of our own individual happiness. Isn't that the goal of all faiths? Your happiness. Four, what is most important is we should all work for the common good. That's the goal. There it is. Religion teaches us, regardless, work for the common good and the betterment of man. Now those are four of the most important core values of our Western culture today. It describes what most people believe. And you can find them in a book called Christianity as Old as Nature, written in 1730 by the first Christian deist, a man by the name of William Tyndall. What is Christian deism, Rusty? It's a belief in the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus, but it's a denial that he is God. And because Christ is not God, Christianity, therefore, is the same as all other religions. He's an enlightened man. All things in religion, therefore, must be judged on our reason, our intellect. Does it make sense to me? So anything that seems impossible or unreasonable in Christianity must be rejected, such as the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the miracles of Christ. And what you are left with is an ordinary man, Jesus, who was an inspired teacher that we can believe in and learn from. But we must reject all that supernatural mumbo-jumbo and talk of him being the Son of God, which by its very nature is irrational and certainly didn't come from Jesus, came years later from his followers. Have you heard that? This was the beliefs of many of the founders of our country. It's what Thomas Jefferson believed. It's what Ben Franklin believed. It's what the second president of America, John Adams, believed. And of most Western people around the world today, they pick and choose the morality of Jesus, yet they wholeheartedly reject him as God. Now I want to ask, how much does this influence our culture and your life? I think it's the driving force of everything that we get in Western culture. So how much has it influenced you? How much of that do you believe and hold on to? In your heart. Do you believe God is good, therefore all religions must lead to Him, and they do? That at the end of the day, all religions are basically the same? Love man and love God? 
that we are all working for the same end, world peace, and what's really important to God is my happiness in all things? My friends, that's not Christianity. That's Christian deism. That's not the teachings of Jesus. That's the teachings of William Tyndall in 1730. That's not the gospel message. It's just the opposite because it rejects the absolute authority of Jesus as God to tell you what is true and essentially says, I know better. My rationale is greater. In John 18, Christ is in the garden when Judas leads a band of soldiers and priests to him. Jesus didn't hide, but he said, who do you want? Who are you seeking? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. Christ says, I am, or I am he. And they all fell down when he said these words. My friends, in those little words, the night that he goes to the cross, Judas and all of his disciples are there, and they hear him claiming he is God. He said the same thing in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, and they took up stones to stone him because they understood quite clearly he's claiming to be Yahweh, God. Here are the main ideas, or the main idea this morning is just this. We're only followers of Christ if we're following Christ as God. Now that's a G.K. Chesterton quote that I've stolen and added a little bit too. We're only followers of Christ if we're following Christ as God. Okay, dive in. Three things that we want to see. Three main figures in this story that we want to follow. First, Jesus. He's redeeming. Second, the disciples are being redeemed. And third, Judas. He's betraying. I want to examine who they are and what they're doing just this night before the cross. First, Judas is standing with the mob. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 2 to 5 again. I'll just read verses 2 and 3, actually. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Stop. Now we need to back up to get a fuller picture of Judas. The things we talked about last week. John 12. One week before he sold Christ, Jesus is in the Mount of Olives. On the other side is the city of Bethany. He's at Simon the leper's house. If you remember, Lazarus' sister Mary is there. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead, and they're having a feast in the honor of Christ. Mary takes her most valuable possession, I think, a perfume bottle, alabaster bottle, worth 300 denarii, a year's wages. And she goes and she breaks it open and she anoints the head of Jesus and his feet for death. Judas then steps in. His greed takes over. And he rebukes her. Remember what he said, verse 5 in chapter 12. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Now some of the disciples were on his side. He was beginning to have an influence on them. He was discipling the disciples, you might say. Mark 14, 4. Some said, why was this wasted? So they see it as well. 
Christ steps in and he rebukes him. Leave her alone so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. He rebuked his greedy heart. Now, fast forward five days. John 13. This is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, in the upper room, the Passover feast, they're all sitting around the table. One of you will betray me. It is the one to whom I give this bread to. And he gave it to Judas. The text says Judas immediately got up and he left the room. Angry, bitter, determined to get his money. He sold Jesus. Mark 14.10 records it. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him there. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Do you get in a picture of his heart? Are you seeing that? He's angry. His pride's been hurt. He's full of greed. And so in his bitterness, he goes and he sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver, the slave price of the day. Now, the next time we see Judas is here in the garden. John 18, verses 2 and 3. There he is with a band of soldiers. Now, during the Passover, there's a fortress called the Antonio Fortress beside the temple. And there would have been four to 600 Roman soldiers there. And they've come. And Matthew 26 says, it's a great multitude. And so Judas is there now, standing with them, leading a great multitude to the Messiah. Imagine three years at the feet of Jesus. He saw miracles again and again. He heard sermons. He heard private instruction. They slept at each other's feet. He professed to be a disciple. He even preached. Now he enters the garden Christ comes down to us, and Luke tells us he goes to him and he marks him with a kiss and says, Greetings, Rabbi. So that the officers and the Pharisees would know exactly which one was Jesus. Listen, my friends, do you see what sin and greed can do to the heart? I have seen it firsthand. Years ago, when I lived in Asia, there was a young man that professed to be a believer and had nowhere to live at the time. He was just moving to our town, so I invited him to come live with me. And for months, every evening, we'd pray together, and we'd read the Scripture together, and I was so excited about what God was doing in his life. One evening, I came in, opened the door unexpectedly, and I found him rummaging through my bed. Just one room, so there was my bed. And he'd seen me keep money there. I went to him, I asked him, what are you doing? And he said, oh, you're quite dirty, I was just making your bed. Now, he was truthful, I was quite dirty, but untruthful about making my bed. Not too long after that, $200 turned up missing, which is a lot of money there. And I went to him, he denied it, he left, I never saw him again. It broke my heart. Now notice, this is where greed and unrepentant sin takes people. This is where it left Judas. The last place we see Judas is that he had betrayed Jesus and he was standing with them. He had led Jesus, the mob that is, to Jesus and was now with the Roman soldiers. Look, I want to encourage you with this. 
Don't be careless with your heart. What I mean is, sometimes we confuse regret and repentance. Sometimes we confuse regret and repentance. And sometimes we can have regret over things, but yet we've never actually turned from it. And our heart gets harder and harder and harder. Tim Keller describes it quite well. I want to just read to you what he says. Regret is not repentance. Both are characterized by very deep sorrow and distress, but they're completely different. First, worldly sorrow or regret doesn't produce any real change, while repentance does. Why? Regret is sorrow over the consequences. There is no sorrow over the sin or for what it is in itself, for how it grieves God and violates our relationship with Him. The focus is all horizontal, worldly, and not at all vertical, concerned about how it affects my relationship with God. Therefore, as soon as the consequences go away, the behavior comes back. The heart has not become disgusted with the sin itself, so the sin remains rooted. The warning from Judas's approach to Christ is not continued repentance saves us, but true repentance is a grace that belongs to the true believer. You see, we can have all religious knowledge, right doctrine, like Judas probably had, sit under the best teaching, but unless our faith produces repentance, an act of turning from my failings and darkness to embrace Christ as God, the one I've offended, a gracious motion that flees from darkness and flees to a loving Savior, then it will leave us where we see Judas standing with a mob with a hard heart separate from Christ. Second, we're only followers of Christ if we're following Christ as God. In contest, Christ to Judas, who is left alone, separate from Christ, now we look at the disciples who are very much saved by Christ. Look at verse 8 with me in your Bibles, please. Notice what Jesus says. I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these go. Christ enters the garden late at night. He left His eight disciples at the gate, at the entrance. He takes Peter, James, and John up to pray. Notice they're tired. And they don't do what He says to do. They're faithless. They disobey what He told them to do. And here's His response. Even when his disciples do not obey what he told them to do and are weak, he shepherds them. Now, he draws them to John 17, 12. Listen, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus had said many times, I will guard them, I will keep my sheep. None will be taken from me. Now, in front of an angry mob who wants to arrest them, he commands them, let these men go. He's protecting his sheep, isn't he? 
Even in the midst of their failings, they were the ones who had not obeyed. They were the ones who were sleeping. Now, it doesn't end there. It goes on to Peter. He commanded the freedom. Now, notice with Peter. Peter then takes in his anger, takes his sword, and whacks off the high priest's helper's ear. And you would think the mob would be in uproar and they would come and grab Peter and take him off. Of course, Jesus heals him. But why not? Why don't they? Because Jesus had just told them, let these men go. Christ had commanded their freedom. Why? Listen. So that they understood how they would be saved. He did not allow His disciples to suffer. So there's no confusion. There was only one person going to the cross, not twelve. He saved them through His cross, not their cross. None of the disciples went to the cross. They were set free. He didn't allow His disciples to be arrested because He wanted them to understand He's the Redeemer. But also, they weren't ready to face the fiery trials that were going to face Jesus. Several years ago, I was gardening. Anybody else here garden? Like to garden? Could we have two gardeners in our church? Well, three. I'm the third. And someone had told me, Rusty, if you plant strawberries, rabbit pellets are great. I thought, great. So I had this huge bucket of rabbit pellets from a rabbit farm, and I was going to plant three rows of strawberries. I said, how do you know how many rabbit pellets to put in your strawberries? Right? Unless you go to the county extension agency and see Lucy. Well, I didn't. So the first one, I said, I'm going to put a lot. So I poured them in, and it absolutely burned them up. Within a few weeks, they were just burned to a crisp. I got nothing. The second one, I put about half that amount. And it was half burned up. And I got a few misly little berries off of it, worth nothing. And the third one, I just put a slight amount in. And I got an unbelievable harvest, myself and the snails, of strawberries. I gave them what they could handle. This is how the shepherd deals with his sheep. 1 Corinthians 10.13, He will not allow them to be tempted beyond what they can bear. You see, when Christ says and protects His sheep, He's doing it because they can't bear it. So what we see in Peter drawing his sword and the other disciples running away is their faith is not ready to face such trials. He is guarding them from it like He said He would do in John 17. As a good shepherd, he is like a wise physician that measures out just the amount of medicine to not bring death, but to heal. Now look, we all face sufferings and trials in different forms. And Christ, our shepherd, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's the promise in 1 Corinthians 10. And we bear it through the strength that he gives us. And knowing even in our hardest of trials, the shepherd will work all things out for the good like he did here in the garden. 
of his disciples. Here's the third thing, the last thing, and we'll close with this. We've looked at Judas, we've looked at the disciples, and third, we're going to look at Christ. Verse 4 and 5, notice he is freely and fully sacrificing himself. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Judas, who was standing with them, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said, Who do you seek? There's the mob. Christ comes off the mountain. There's Judas standing with the crowd. And he says to them, Who are you looking for? We want to see Jesus, they say. Notice his response. I am. In front of the multitude. I am. Why? Well, this is the response God gave Moses in Exodus 3.14. Who should I tell him sent me? I am. The Jews added vows to that word. Yahweh is what it was. Looking for Jesus, they found I am. God Himself in the garden. And notice their response. When He said these words, they drew back and they fell on the ground. And so in other words, when Jesus says the very name of God, His own glory, who are you looking for? A man. What you found is I am Yahweh in your presence. And when He says that, they behold His glory. And like every instance that we see in the Scripture, when man is before God, they cannot bury and they fall. Judas was standing there too. And when Jesus says, Ego I me, I am, revealed His name, His glory, they could not stand before it. And He's making it clear. He's not being taken. He's the Lamb who voluntarily gives His life because He loves the sheep and He's doing the Father's will. At the moment that Christ seems weakest, surrounded, most hopeless, most helpless, He showed His strength. He allowed Himself to be captured to accomplish something. Your salvation. Your redemption. My friends, remember this. Christ, God, the Son, is the great I Am. He suffered and died as His own free will. Not because He could not help it. They took Him by force. Or that He could not escape. Because of two words, he put him on his back. He chose to suffer to accomplish something. The Father's will, our salvation, our redemption from sin, death, and hell. This is what Matthew Henry says about it. When the people came to force him to take a crown and become king, he withdrew from them. When they came to force him to his cross, he offered himself freely. How do we think and live this? How do you take this from your head? Okay, Rusty, I understand. There's Christ just before He dies. He shows that He is God once more. God is dying on the cross for me. In 1730, Matthew Tyndall declared himself to be the first Christian deist. He wrote compelling people 
that all beliefs about God, if rational, are the same at the root. What God really wants is for you to be happy. In the end, there is nothing new here. Man is rejecting Jesus as God and placing my will as supreme. And there's one thing we want to close with. You can't have Christian morality without faith in Christ as God. You cannot have Christian morality like the world wants to have without also having Christ as God. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Anybody here heard of Frederick Nietzsche? Fred Nietzsche? Nietzsche, the great German atheistic philosopher, brilliant man, raised in a Christian home, in his famous work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, says, God is dead. And all of Europe applauded him. Cast off God. We don't need God. And Nietzsche thought he would see change in culture as people are, quote-unquote, free from God. And what he saw was, yet people still held on to a life of morality that Jesus had taught. Nietzsche, in his fury, wrote this. They, meaning culture, the world, are rid of the Christian God and now believe all the more firmly that they must cling to Christian morality. Notice these words. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from one's feet. He gets it. He understands consistency. If Jesus is not God, then He is a liar and He is a fraud. And you should never live your life according to the moral teachings of a fraud. Make sense? If Christ is not God, then He has no right of authority to tell you and our world what is right and wrong, how we should live. He's just another man, maybe a bit wiser than me. The question is, as you examine every area of your life, your family, your career, your possessions, your ambitions, how you spend your time, are you willing to do whatever Christ says about these areas because you know and you trust Him as Lord, as God? Or is how you live and what you think ought to be and how you ought to live rest upon your own desires, what you think is rational and makes sense? One describes a Christian, another a deist. C.S. Lewis says about the incredible claims of Christ to be God, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or a liar, on par with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something much worse. I just want to close with these last two thoughts. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, offers all people, regardless of what they believed, where they come from, and what they've done, the offer, though, of the gospel of salvation and reconciliation to God is first the person and then the privileges of the gospel. God first gives us His Son, 
And as a consequence of our faith and trust in him, he gives us all the promises and the good news of the gospel. You might say, first the person, then the portion. You can't separate the person of Jesus as God from the portion of the gospel. And you don't have the promise of the gospel until you know and love the person of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Last thing. That means you have to search the Scriptures and come to a trust that Jesus is who He says He is. Not just an inspired man, not just a prophet, someone who has a special connection with God, but you fully believe and trust He is fully God and fully man. Is God one who is able to perform miracles, to die and be resurrected, and to resurrect me into new life when I die? And as man, He's able to empathize with me like He did with His disciples in my weakness, in my sufferings, in the world. A second Adam who came to restore the brokenness of our world, and that starts with my heart. Amen? Father, I just praise You that um, we don't just look to an inspired teacher. You don't just send us a prophet whose mind is illuminated. And I thank You, Lord, that You have stuck a stake in the sand. You've taken on flesh. God has come down to be everything that the shadow of salvation in the Old Testament promises. A full Savior to reveal the glory of a living God to us. Father, and yet the world says again and again and again in a thousand different mouths, it can't be, it's irrational, God could never become man. And yet we look at Jesus, we look at His life, we see His resurrection, we see the testimonies of it, we see His miracles, and we know He transformed us and He must be. God, I pray that anybody here who looks at Jesus as just a moral teacher, someone who teaches us what's right and wrong, God, that they would go back and read the life and the story and the death and the resurrection, and your Holy Spirit would convince them that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and able to save us completely, simply by faith, through your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Can you please stand and we'll sing our closing song. The splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth